everyone. Welcome back to Adhere to Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chad McIntosh. He's a philosopher. He got his PhD at Cornell. We're going to be talking about all kinds of fun stuff relating to the Trinity. But Chad, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Zach, for having me on. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation or more of an interview. We're going to be talking about Chad's work on the Trinity and trying to understand like who God is and stuff like that. Um, we have a bunch of fun questions lined up in, in a slide, kind of walking through the basis of the argument that will be going up soon here. Um, but before we get into like all this Trinity stuff, which will be lots of fun, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, uh, my name is Chad McIntosh. Uh, I earned a BA in philosophy from Calvin College. Uh, an MA and then PhD in philosophy from Cornell University. Um, just defended my dissertation uh, in April of last year. Uh, feel great to have that finally in the rear view. Besides that, uh, pursuing philosophy studies um, kind of on my own when I when I can uh, in my spare time because uh, I'm pretty busy uh, as a stay-at-home dad at the moment, uh, raising two girls. Uh, one was just born two months ago, and uh, we have a house on 23 acres, uh, which is a lot to manage. Uh, so, uh, between, uh, trying to manage that and, and, uh, two, two kids, um, trying to publish here and there to keep one foot in academia. Uh, I'm so glad that, uh, I didn't, I wasn't tied down by a teaching post, uh, when all this, uh, pandemic stuff hit, because I don't think I would have survived, but being able to, um, manage online classes. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to uh, be blessed enough to just be able to work from home. Mm. As a student now, I can say the online classes are definitely a challenge. Um, but besides for that, let's talk about the Trinity because you've done a lot of interesting work on the Trinity. So could you just talk about like what got you interested in this topic? Yeah, well, it was back in my Calvin days uh, when I was a student at Calvin. I think it was in 2011. I asked. Uh, one of my professors there, Kelly James Clark, if he would supervise an independent study with me on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I remember him saying that he thinks the doctrine of the Trinity is the hardest topic Christian philosophers can work on. And that really piqued my interest. So I drafted an overly ambitious syllabus that covered pretty much everything philosophers had written on the topic in the past 50 years or so up to that point. Mm. And and it was uh, an immensely rewarding, uh, enriched study uh, that in, in some ways kind of uh, charted my trajectory uh, up to the present. Mm, that's an interesting study. So like, what were some of your like big takeaways from doing this study? Well, there are several. Um, if it's not, if the Trinity is not the hardest topic, like Clark thinks, it's definitely got to be the richest or one of the richest. It's like a bottomless pit of philosophical concepts. Like you have the classic problem of the many and the one, you have the concept of personhood, uh, you have uh, the nature of identity, uh, metaphysical dependence relations like constitution, mereology, grounding, um, basic ontological categories are central to the doctrine like substance and essence and intrinsic and extrinsic relations. You have uh, uh, Issues in the nature of love and friendship come up, uh, value theory, mystery, paradox. It's got it's got everything. It's it's mm -hmm. great. It's, uh, it's definitely something to keep the philosophical wheel spinning for a, for a long time. Um, now, go ahead. No, no, no. I wasn't going to add anything. Keep on going. Okay. So that being said, 
one thing I did take away from that study with Clark is that it seems to me that the philosophical literature on the Trinity has gotten stale in a way. Um, it's almost like all of it, or at least the vast majority of it, is about the so-called logical problem of the Trinity. How can there be one God yet three persons who are also God? Uh, and so the logical options on this are, are pretty fairly mapped out uh, and have been for years. So we have on one hand, the Latin Trinitarians who think God is just one self, try to explain how he can be yet three distinct persons. And on the other hand, you have social Trinitarians who think that they are three selves in God. And so try to go on to explain how there can be yet one being. Um, so most of what's been written is on the Trinity by philosophers in the past I don't say 50 years or so. It's just Latin Trinitarians uh, accusing the social Trinitarians of being tritheists. And then the social Trinitarians accusing the Latin Trinitarians of being modalists. Uh, now, this, this is an important dialogue. Um, but as I just mentioned, there are just so many other things that the doctrine of the Trinity brings up that uh, it's, it's unfortunate that philosophers aren't talking a lot about all these other things as well. Um, so... Let me just mention two things that philosophers, I think, really should be working on with the Trinity. That's that goes beyond the mere logical problem of the, of the Trinity. The first is um, when you read the work of a lot of contemporary Christian philosophers in philosophical theology. Let's say you pick up a book on the nature of divine omniscience or uh, omnipotence uh, or something to that effect or aseity. Christian philosophers have this annoying tendency to think about the divine attributes in isolation from the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's like, you'll have a book on, on omniscience, what it means to be omniscient that doesn't even mention the Trinity. Mm -hmm. it, it's like, it's like they completely forget that this central doctrine, this doctrine central to the concept of the Christian God uh, even play, should play a role in how we should think of the other divine attributes. So that's one area that I think Christian philosophers need to be doing a lot more of. The second area is Christian philosophers need to think harder about philosophical arguments for the Trinity. Um, reasons to think that if God exists, God must be more than one person. Uh, and there's really only one person doing this right now, and it's Richard Swinburne. And many people have problems with his argument. Uh, well, I should say that uh, look forward to the work of, um, uh, I wrote their names down. Um, because they have a, they've been de developing a paper for quite a while. Ah, it's Daniel Vecchio and Tyler Journeau. They have a paper where they try to argue philosophically that if God exists, God must be more than one person. And I, actually, I wrote a paper on the same thing for my independent study with Clark. Right. Um, and the Trinity is one of these interesting topics because it seems like there's so much mystery um, here. And a lot of people are just like, well, I don't know. But could you tell us a little bit more about like your paper and what happened there? Well, I, it's, I long since abandoned that paper. It was just a, a term paper. But I think the, the strategy I lay out there is still promising and would be a fruitful one. And the main idea is this. It's that in recent years, a sub-discipline of metaphysics called social metaphysics has gotten really popular. Uh, and what philosophers do in social metaphysics is that they argue that certain properties of persons are essentially social and cannot be had but in groups of persons. Uh, they're socially grounded, you might say. 
so these include, uh, might, might surprise you, uh, these include rationality, freedom, mm. moral responsibility, moral virtues like love and justice, value and meaning, linguistic ability, uh, and even self-consciousness. Philosophers have argued that all of these kinds of properties must be had in groups. You can't have a single person have some of these properties. Mm -hmm. uh, so if that's true, then the Trinitarian is off and running. You just say God has these properties. And so God must be more than one person. Mm, right. So one thing I wonder about here is just like why I think that these virtues would kind of be in God. I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. Um, so maybe if you want to save it to the end, but like why why would you, why would you think that God would have to have these virtues like um, in community, like knowledge or love or things like that? When we think about the concept of God, there are certain conceptual constraints, um, and one of them is perfection, what it means to be perfect. And since God is at least one person, we should think about what it means to be a perfect person. And obviously, uh, a perfect person is going to have knowledge to some degree. He's going to have power, the ability to act. Uh, he's going to be a loving person. Um, so we have to think of these characteristics essential to personhood and then think about how they would look uh, for a perfect person mm. uh, or in the case of Christians, uh, a tripersonal being. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So in your dis dissertation, you develop an argument for a tripersonal God, at least, right. That's kind of like what you're doing. So what's going on there? I, it's sort of an argument for a tripersonal mm -hmm. God. Um it's mostly just m the metaphysics I need for such an argument to work. Mm. Um, and, and the major weak spot of that argument is, is well, I'll get to it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so you can think of the major weak spots of like um, Richard Swinburne's argument for the Trinity or other arguments. If you adopt this social metaphysics strategy that I talk about and say, okay, God must have these uh properties that cannot be had but in groups. So God must be at least more than one person. Um, the weakness of these sorts of arguments is that they don't get you to the conclusion that God must be exactly three persons. Okay, God must be more than one person, but why should we say he's three persons and not four or five or six or so forth? So the main virtue of the argument I offer in my dissertation is that I do get you to the conclusion that God has exactly three parts. Mm. Now, the weakness there is that uh, it's hard to see how or why we should think of these three parts as persons. So I get the exact three number, but uh, maybe it's a little bit harder to see why they're, they're persons. But I do give an argument. Uh, I want to give an argument a little bit later on to, uh, for thinking that they are, are persons. Great, great. Let's just talk about like, so how do you do this? Um, it's an interesting idea. So if you're going to run it through, we have a slide here. How do you do this? Okay. So the main idea is it's, it begins with the principle of sufficient reason. So we, we begin with a generic principle of sufficient reason that the majority of philosophers, or at least uh, uh, believing philosophers throughout history, have endorsed, which is that everything that exists has an explanation, either in something else or in itself. And philosophers have used this sort of generic principle of sufficient reason to argue for the existence of God, a, a basic cosmological style argument. So we would have the first premise, there exists something whose explanation is in something else, 
Uh, and obviously we have candidates for that. There would be contingent things. Uh, contingent things are explained by other things. Uh, so the next premise would be if there exists something whose explanation is in something else, well, then there must be something that exists whose explanation is in itself. Now, that might sound like a big jump, but really most cosmological arguments have sub-premises that support this. Uh, and the idea here is just that, look, the chain of things whose explanation is in other things, it can't be infinite, can't go on forever, and it can't be circular. Um, now, when we say it can't be infinite, we mean that it can't be uh, explanation deferred uh, indefinitely. So you have the famous example of um, the physics professor giving a lecture explaining how gravity uh, uh, is the reason why the earth doesn't fall in space. And then an impatient old lady in the audience uh, balks at the physics professor's explanation uh, in terms of gravity. And he says, well, wh what, what's your explanation of why the earth doesn't just fall in space? And she says, well, it's resting on a giant turtle. And he says, well, what's the turtle resting on? And she says, another turtle. <laughs> and he says, well, what's that one resting on? And then she says, it's turtles all the way down. So the, the problem there is not just that turtles, the galactic turtles don't exist. Uh, the problem is she's deferred explanation indefinitely. Um, so if you defer explanation indefinitely, what you're what you're doing is you're not really explaining the original thing that needed to be explained in the first place. So chains of explanations, chains of things that are explained in terms of other things can't go on forever. Um, and they can't be circular because that's vicious. And we'll talk a little bit more about vicious circularity in a moment. Okay, so that's that's the reason why if the ch if there is something that exists whose explanation is in something else, we must arrive at something whose explanation is in itself. Um, there's some other arguments you could give for that premise, but uh, for now, um, let's just take it for granted. Uh, if those two premises are true, we have the conclusion there exists something whose explanation is in itself um, from one and two modus ponens. Now, that's sort of a generic cosmological argument for a being whose explanation is in itself. We can go a little bit further uh, with shades of like a Thomistic third way argument for the conclusion that this being whose explanation is in itself must also be a necessary being. You know, it'll go like this. That which exists whose explanation is in itself is either contingent or it's necessary. Those seem to be mutually exclusive and exhaustive options. Uh, but if it's contingent, then it has an explanation in something else. But that which has an explanation in itself can't have its explanation in something else by definition. So that which exists whose explanation is in itself is not contingent but necessary. Uh, and that follows from the previous uh, three premises, four through six. Okay, so uh, so far so good. We have a standard cosmological argument. Um, so I, I more or less take this sort of argument for granted in my dissertation. And I want to push further motivated by that principle of sufficient reason and ask how something can have its explanation in itself. That's the question. And contemporary philosophers have said almost nothing about this, which is it's intriguing to me, but, but uh, they, they use these cosmological arguments to get you to a being who's necessary, whose explanation, whose explanation is in itself, 
but then just stop. They don't they don't try to explain how something could have its explanation in itself. Hmm. Um, so philosophers, they'll they'll just stop with that, and I guess they're just content, and they'll they'll pull like the the Aquinas line, and they'll say something like, "Well, this all men call God," um, hmm. but. Uh, the reason I think that they'd normally stop there is because they think that if a being is necessarily existent, it doesn't need an explanation. Um, but that is false. That's got to be false um, because philosophers think of explanations of necessary beings all the time. Uh, so if you think like abstract objects exist, like numbers, uh, they're the sorts of things that if they exist at all, they exist necessarily. And yet, philosophers, especially like theists, they like to think of numbers as being ex explained by being the thoughts of God, uh, mm -hmm. or or take necessary or take moral truths or properties. Philosophers think that these, if they exist, they'd be necessary, uh, and yet uh, we need an explanation for why there are these necessary moral properties and truths and and and. And theists think that their explanation is that they're grounded in God's moral perfection and God's morally perfect nature. Uh, so in all these other contexts, we think that just because something exists necessarily, that doesn't thereby foreclose the possibility that they can be explained. But when it comes to God, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, it just existence exists necessarily. There doesn't need to be an explanation. And that's where I'm, I want to push back and say, no, you've accepted the principle of sufficient reason, and God is no exception. So what's God's explanation? Hmm. So this is great. Do you want to go? Um, so we have a necessary being here, mm -hmm. so it does need an explanation. So what would be God's explanation then? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> can you think of a deeper question than that? What is God's explanation? Uh, and it reminds me of uh, Robert Nozick's attempt, uh, or no, he says he says of any attempt to answer that sort of question, uh, which is really the, Leibniz's preeminent question, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, Nozick says that the question cuts so deep that any attempt to uh, answer it that stands a chance of, of being plausible is going to sound crazy. It's going to sound mm -hmm. weird. Um, but that's what we're doing. We're 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 going to try to answer that, and and we will encounter a little bit of weirdness or craziness. Um, but that's what we got to do. Uh, mm -hmm. So we want to arrive at uh, how a necessary being, whose explanation is in itself, um, how does that work? Um, mm -hmm. And we can't go prior to this being because there is nothing prior to this being that can explain it. Uh, so where do we go from here? We have to go into this being we have to turn inward because nothing outside of this being can explain it so there must be something inside this being that can explain it um and my proposal here is when we think about what an internal explanation looks like in other contexts the obvious candidate of for something that in, explains something existence internally is the thing's parts uh mm. so if you think of like a wall, if you want to explain why a wall exists, but not refer to anything outside the wall, not the builder or anything like that, uh, well, you're going to explain its parts. You're going to you're going to you're going to say it exists because all the bricks exist. Or if you want to explain the existence of a set, like uh, um, the set of natural numbers, let's say, 
you're going to cite all the natural numbers of one, two, three, four, all the way to infinity. Or if you want to explain why a proton exists without referencing anything else, uh, you're going to appeal to its quarks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so if we want an explanation of why something exists that doesn't reference anything outside that thing, the most obvious and plausible candidate here is going to be the thing's parts. And so mm -hmm. I say we try to answer the question of why God exists by saying, uh, well, let's look inward uh, and say that God has parts. Um, now, that just pushes the question back uh, a step because now we have to uh, apply the same sort of constraints on explanation that we that we had earlier and say, well, it can't be parts all the way down. Mm. Uh, and the parts can't explain each other in a vicious manner, in a, in a viciously circular way. Uh, so how does that happen? How do how does God? How, OK, so God is explained by his parts. How do the parts explain each other? And how do you do that without it being viciously circular? That's the uh, that's sort of the next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious about this. So how would you kind of like go about this without getting into some sort of like circular reasoning um, about mm -hmm. like God and such? Yeah, and most cases of mutual what's or most cases of mutual explanation or mutual dependence, um, I think are patently viciously circular. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the paradigm example would be like time travel cases. Uh, mm -hmm. So if I build a time machine, um, but only because I had the plans delivered to me by my future self who built a time machine, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's obviously viciously circular and has nothing to do with the temporal order here. Um, it's circular because we have one state of affairs, let's just call it A, existing only because of another state of affairs, B, which exists because a exists. Mm -hmm. So the problem is if B exists only because of A, that means B, well, A would have to be prior to B. But then if you say B exists only because of A, then B would be prior to A. So mm -hmm. they would have to be prior to each other. Uh, the same problem comes up uh, with, a, with a time machine example and other, and other examples mm -hmm. of a purported mutual explanation. Uh, if they exist only because each other, they will be prior to each other, which is a logical impossibility. Mm -hmm. um, and this this is a problem, even even for cases where uh, you would think that there is obviously some sort of mutual dependence or explanation. So take magnets, for example. Um, you might think the north and the south poles of a magnet explain each other, but if they only if if they explain only each other, the North ex North Pole explains the South Pole and the South Pole explains the North Pole, then again, that's got to be logically impossible because they can't be prior to each other. Uh, another example is Kit Fine's uh, example of what he calls reciprocal essences um, of fictional objects. So he says, uh, the essence of Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes depends on being admired by Watson and Watson's essence depends on admiring Holmes. But again, that it's that's impossible if all we have are these two things trying to explain each other because then they'd be prior, prior to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so uh, where we're at is it seems like we need some form of mutual explanation because it can't be parts all the way down. Um, the problem is mutual explanation seems to be viciously circular. Mm. Um, now, here's the key point. And this is what I argue in my dissertation. 
not all cases of mutual explanation should be understood this way as merely binary with two terms uh, where, we, where all we have is the chicken and the egg and the question of which came first. Uh, so going back to the magnet example, yes, the North and South Poles do depend on each other, but not just each other. They also mm. depend on a third thing, namely the magnetic field. Uh, the essences of Holmes and Watson do depend on each other, but not only each other. They also depend on other things in the Arthur Doyle series. Um, so it's this introduction of a third term that I think is crucial for non-vicious uh, mutual explanation. Um, and this sort of tripartite structure, this mutual tripartite structure is actually found in other uh, cases of mutual dependence or explanation as well. So you could see it in uh, the relation between mass density and volume uh, or hylomorphic compounds of matter form and whatever conjoins them. Uh, certain, very interestingly, certain subatomic particles like protons and neutrons are made up of quark triplets hmm. uh, where each of the three quarks sort of mutually depend on each other in this, in this hmm. tripartite way. It's very interesting. So you can think of the structure here, the structure of explanation. It's not loopy as you would have in a viciously circular case. It's more webby. Uh, hmm. where, where each of the terms sort of explains the other um, in, in this sort of web-like uh, fashion. Hmm. So um, before we get into the next step here, so would you say that there's like nothing in existence that only has like two parts, like everything involves like at least like three parts in, in, in its existence before we get um, specifically into like God here? Well, certainly there could be things that have only two parts. Mm -hmm. Um but those things would have explanations outside of themselves. Um, so they could depend on their two parts, mm. uh, but then yet be explained by something external to them that can join those two parts together. Um, now, the question I do want to maintain that if there is nothing outside of some, if, if, if we're talking about the being that whose explanation is in itself, mm -hmm. uh, I am coming to the conclusion that it's impossible that have it have just two parts because we have mm -hmm. no resources outside of it to explain the parts, uh, and two just having two parts to explain each other is viciously circular. Mm. So, if God's explanations in His parts, then you would kind of argue that God would have at least uh, three parts. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Uh, and obviously, I'm thinking of the divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, mm -hmm. So, the triune God is explained by the divine persons. And the divine persons are explained by each other. Nothing goes unexplained, uh, which is the demand of the principle of sufficient reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is consonant with the doctrine of perichoresis uh, or the mutual indwelling of the divine persons. Um, now, some some theologians uh, describe the doctrine of perichoresis using the term interpenetration. Mm -hmm. Now, uh that's kind of an awkward term these days, yeah. but uh, it, it captures the idea where these three these three terms are all sort of like intermingled with each other mm -hmm. in this in this unique way. Mm. Right. So one of the things I kind of wonder about at this point is like, why couldn't there be more than three persons? Like, why is it a trinity? Why not like four or five or six uh -huh. different persons? Uh huh. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely the the next you would think it'd be the next logical step. Um, mm -hmm. Well, we're all familiar with Occam's razor. Uh, don't postulate the existence of of things 
more things that are necessary to explain what you're trying to explain. Uh, in short, don't multiply entities beyond necessity. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan Schaffer, a philosopher, uh, he has recently proposed his own sort of parsimony principle that he calls the laser or uh, Schaffer's laser. Don't multiply fundamental entities beyond necessity. Mm. Uh, and since all we need to explain everything else is one fundamental being, we shouldn't postulate any more than just one fundamental being. Now, for Schaffer, he thinks the fundamental being is the universe or the cosmos, which grounds its many, 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 many parts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have a parsimony principle of my own to recommend in response, which mm-hmm. I'll just call Chad's eraser. Don't, right. mul- don't multiply parts of a fundamental entity beyond necessity. And since mm-hmm. all we need on my view is one fundamental being with just three parts, we should just go ahead and erase all the rest. So we have mm. one fundamental being with just three parts. Right. So we have Chad's eraser here that can kind of help us out with this ad- objection. Um, but why I think this tripartite being would be God, though? Um, rather, Why would these be like divine persons rather than just like anything else maybe that we'd see like in the universe? That is th- that's the hardest question for this for the view I'm sketching. And I don't have mm. a great answer. Um I can kind of work up to what I think is a is a decent answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's revisit that argument, the cause the generic cosmological argument, mm-hmm. um, and take stock here. Uh, so we have the principle of sufficient reason. Everything that exists has an explanation, either in something else or in itself. Um, and then from there we we can arrive at a being that exists uh, whose explanation is in itself. That's three. And then from there, we can show that that being must be necessarily existent. Uh, That's conclusion seven. Um, And then I want to push further. The argument I've been sketching here is begins with eight. That which exists, whose explanation is in itself, is explained by its parts. Nine. That which exists, whose explanation is in itself, is explained by its parts only if it has at least three parts, because Mm -hmm. only having two is viciously circular. Uh, and so a uh, subsidiary conclusion is that 10, that which exists, whose explanation is in itself, has at least three parts. Now, your objection earlier, why not more than three? I say, well, if three parts are sufficient to explain that which exists, whose explanation is in itself, we should postulate no more. That's Chad's eraser. And so three parts are sufficient to explain that which exists, whose explanation is in itself. And so we can conclude that which exists, whose explanation is in itself, has three parts and no more than three parts. So altogether, from the initial PSR, my proposed tripartite style of mutual explanation and a parsimony principle, we get we get the final conclusion. There exists something whose explanation is in itself, and that thing is necessarily existent, and, and it has exactly three parts. Okay, now to your last question, why I think this being is God, in particular the tripersonal God, uh, or that the parts are persons, the, di- the divine persons? Well, I want to offer what can be called an argument from very suspicious metaphysical coincidence. It mm. just so happens that the world's most dominant religion has it that there is only one God who is necessary, and wouldn't you know it, also three something, namely persons. So mm-hmm. what are the odds of that? Uh, I yeah. think th- this argument's really just inference to the best explanation or maybe even inference to the only explanation. Uh, but I think it's a good one. 
Right. So do you think that like all Trinitarians could adopt your argument? Because there would be some Christians, uh, our good friends who are classical theists, that would deny the idea that God has parts. Some do deny that. Um, and it may, for those who do, it may help to point out that not, not everything that has parts is a material object or can fall apart, you know, can like decompose or crumble apart. Um, many things that are immaterial and necessarily existent can have parts. Just, again, I mentioned sets earlier. Think of the set of all natural numbers. If numbers exist, they exist necessarily. Uh, so this is an immaterial thing that's necessarily existent, that has its parts essentially and can't fall apart. Uh, there, there are other examples like that. Um, so if that helps, uh, I mean, don't think of God as having parts as being, being able to pull him apart or, or like he can decompose or something like that, or he's not necessarily existent. Okay. So that might help some, but it won't help others. Uh, and I have in mind, um, philosophers who endorse the doctrine of divine simplicity. They reject the idea that God could have parts in any sense whatsoever. Um, now, what I want to know is, and obviously uh, philosophers who accept the doctrine of divine simplicity cannot accept my argument. Uh, but what I would, I would want to know, I would want to know is if they accept the principle of sufficient reason, what is their explanation of God's existence? And you don't see them trying to give an explanation of God's existence. Um, historically, philosophers have tried to do that. Uh, in my published work, um, I survey what Anselm tried to say about this, what Aquinas tried to say about it, uh, what Descartes, uh, Spinoza, and Leibniz all tried to say about this because they all accepted that principle of sufficient reason. Uh, and I argue that none of their accounts are ultimately successful. Um, but you've got to say something if you accept the principle of sufficient reason. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't see how philosophers who think the doctrine of divine simplicity is true can accept the principle of sufficient reason. Um, in fact, there's a pretty straightforward argument uh, against the doctrine of divine simplicity if you do accept the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, it, will go, it will go like this. Um, if God, if the principle of sufficient reason is true, God has an explanation. Um, now if God is simple, uh, there's nothing internal to God that could serve as God's explanation because there's nothing really distinct in God, but God's supposed to be the preeminent being. There's nothing prior to or external to God. Uh, that could serve as his explanation. And if, if there's nothing internal to God, really distinct, that could serve as his explanation, there can just be no explanation uh, since we can have an explanation neither internally nor externally. So it's mm -hmm. got to be either the principle of sufficient reason or the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I'm ready to throw in with the, doc with, uh, the principle of sufficient reason and not uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Right. So we, it seems like you think that the PSR wouldn't really work with classical theism, but let's just forget about the PSR for a second here. Um, would divine simplicity be compatible with even like the Trinity in your view? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the underlying uh, question, uh, right? Is uh -huh. uh, I, yeah. I, I don't see how how the doctrine of divine simplicity is compatible with, with the Trinity. And mm -hmm. Uh, many people don't know this, but the doctrine of divine simplicity actually has its origins 
an anti-Trinitarian Muslim and Jewish apologists. Uh, mm. They found in Aristotle a lot of philosophical ammunition against Christians, uh, which which Aquinas then unwittingly inherited through Arabic, Arabic commentators on Aristotle. Hmm. Uh, and, and I don't want to follow that tradition. Mm. Right. So one thing that's really interesting here is you talked about a little bit in the beginning, there's a lot of different models and views of how the Trinity works. And you got Richard Swinburne and all these other people that are trying to figure this out. Um, they obviously think there'd be more people that need to do this in your view. Like, what do you think is the best like model or view of the Trinity based off of your research into this important topic? Uh, well, I think some social Trinitarian model is the way to go. Uh, the Father, mm -hmm. Son, and Spirit each has a mind of their own, uh, but not obviously not in the sense that they could be discordant with each other. Um, but they do have a have a, a, a mind, a mental faculty of, of their own, separate from the others. Um, and I and since it fits so nicely with my argument above. I'm really attracted to a myriological model that sees the three persons as parts of God. Uh, since the Father is not the whole Godhead, uh, nor the Son, nor the Spirit, there's got to be some part-whole relationship obtaining here. Um, and composition, uh, the relation of part to whole, uh, is a mini-one relation. It, 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 it's a relation where one thing is made up of many things. Uh, so... Uh, there's a solution here uh, for the logical problem of Trinity. Now, when you, once you go deeper with a myriological model, you do get into some, some pretty hairy and tricky details. Uh, but I think a, a myriological model that sees uh, God as being uh, composed of the Father, Son, and Spirit um, is the way to go. Mm. Right. So what do you think would be like the strongest objection to like a social Trinitarian model? So a, a strong subjection to social Trinitarian model. Um, it's got to be. So when you read the literature on the Trinity, philosophers typically say it's that social Trinitarians don't have a good answer to uh, the charge that tritheism is true. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's a good objection. The best objection is that if social Trinitarianism is true, that implies that God is not a person, a mm -hmm. single person to whom we pray, to whom we worship, to whom we refer with singular personal pronouns like you or him. Uh, so, But we do relate to God with, mm -hmm. in a singular way with singular pronouns like you and him. Uh, we, we ask him for his forgiveness. Uh, mm -hmm. We praise him for his, uh, his, his creation. Mm -hmm. um, so we naturally do think of God as a person, a single person and not three persons. It's mm. not like when we pray, uh, it's not like we stop and clarify to which of the divine persons we're addressing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah. you know, I actually tried to do that once, uh, tried to tailor my, my, uh, devotional life, uh, in such a way as to, um, be socially trinitarian and it was very, <laughs> and it was very awkward uh mm -hmm. and and uh i i so i think that there's got to be something else to say here for, uh by social trinitarians uh because we do so naturally think about and relate to god as a single person and not three distinct persons so right in your view then how do you respond to this like seeming like puzzling ob objection yeah i say something that might seem pretty radical i i argue that god the triune god 
and not just the Father, Son, and Spirit is also a person in mm -hmm. addition to the Father, Son, and Spirit. So whereas other social Trinitarians, they'll respond to this objection by saying, well, it's not a big deal because the three persons, they act so harmoniously, uh, we can treat them as if they were a single person. Uh, I say, no, uh, I, I go further and say, God has to actually be a single person mm -hmm. uh, or else all the natural ways we think about and relate to God is just engaging in like fictional discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, so no, the only way that we can have a realism about interacting with God as a single person is if God is a single person. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just say, say he's a person. Yeah. This sounds um, almost a little bit like crazy, like just trying to get your mind around this. Um, it's an interesting world we live in. Like, so how do you make sense of the idea that like God, in addition to like the father, son and Holy spirit is a person as well. Like it's, it's an interesting topic to try to like get your mind around. Uh-huh. Well, here I draw on recent work by philosophers, on something called group agency realism, group mm. agency realism. Uh, and, and here philosophers argue pretty convincingly, I think, that a group of people can be structured in such a way that the group actually takes on characteristics of agency. The group mm. becomes an agent unto itself uh, with beliefs, intentions, uh, and actions of its own that cannot be reduced down to the beliefs, actions, and intentions of its members alone. Um, so let me, let me just kind of sketch an example of how this might work. Um, imagine a restaurant called Organicopia mm. opens up down the street, uh, uh, to cater to the, the local hipster community. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's got all the hipster stuff. It's got kale milkshakes. It's got pine nut salads. It's got black bean burgers. Um, it's got hand, those little hand knit sweaters for their French presses. Uh, it's got the whole nine. It's everything's locally sourced and overpriced. So, you know, it's legit. Mm -hmm. Now suppose all of the people who work at Organicopia, including the owner are meat eating Trump supporting capitalists. All right. Mm -hmm. Clearly as a restaurant, Organicopia has a certain mission and values that can't be reduced down to the mission and values of its employees or the owner. Mm -hmm. um, but let's just say that they are good employees and they work hard on Organicopia's behalf to realize Organicopia's mission and values. Organicopia is a real part of the community over and above its employees and owner and not just some fictional entity. Mm. Um, so philosophers have done, I think, an impressive job at showing how the standard accounts of what it means to have values and beliefs, uh, intentions or mm. a perspective or to perform actions. All of these analyses are compatible with groups having these things too. Um, so for example, if, if, if you think, if you think uh, uh, like my, my own thoughts, for example, are, are mediated by neurons. My thoughts mm -hmm. and actions are mediated by neurons. Uh, well, then you can't say that well, a group can't have its own beliefs and thoughts and actions if it's because they're all mediated by its members, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you have to say, especially the most dramatic cases, obviously, are those like the one I tried to sketch, where the the beliefs and thoughts and values of the group are distinct from the belief, thoughts, and values of of any of the individual members. Mm. Um, okay, so suppose you agree with me that 
there can be group agents, all right? Group agents distinct from their members. Now, earlier I said we relate, we naturally relate to uh, God as a person. Um, so granted, maybe you think that there can be group group agents, but what about group persons? That seems to take it a step further and maybe mm. less into less plausible territory. Um, but I don't think so. There's good reason to go further and say that groups can also be persons uh, and not just agents. It's widely agreed that moral responsibility and having a rational perspective are sufficient conditions of personhood. Okay, so whatever has a rational perspective and whatever is morally responsible, say it can be morally praiseworthy, it can act in morally praiseworthy or blameworthy ways, anything that can be like this counts as a person. Mm -hmm. um, so I say groups can be morally praise, praiseworthy and blameworthy, uh, and they can have a rational perspective. And so groups can be persons too. Mm, right. So this is an interesting question I come up with now. If they got a person in addition to like the Father, Son, and Spirit, wouldn't we have four persons instead of three persons? Like that wouldn't be like an Orthodox Christian belief. That'd be a pretty kind of crazy idea in terms of like Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. Well, a rough analogy to group personhood would be like uh, those those old cartoons that you know, like Power Rangers and and Voltron, where you have like the individual characters that, who come together to make like yeah. this this like distinct character um, mm -hmm. with it's got its own abilities and so forth. Um, okay, so why is this like a monstrosity? Are are we are we are we solving a philosophical problem and creating a theological one? Mm. Um, by, by viewing God as this group person in addition to the three persons. And I think this is not a good objection uh, mm. for the following reason. We should distinguish two different kinds of persons. Um, we should distinguish what I would want to call intrinsicist persons. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm borrowing that term from uh, uh, Philip Pettit and Christopher List on their group on their in their book on group agency intrinsicist persons which are persons by virtue of their intrinsic nature we want to distinguish those kinds of persons from functional persons persons who are persons by virtue of their function alone and not their intrinsic nature mm -hmm. okay so there's this distinction between two kinds of persons so intrinsicist persons would be persons like you and me um you know angels and demons, uh, God, um, you know, we, we, works of fiction, you know, things like wizards and, and elves and dwarves and, uh, all, all these would be intrinsicist persons, persons, uh, that are persons by virtue of their nature, not how they function. Mm -hmm. Okay. Contrast that, uh, with this other category of persons, functional persons, some clinicians, who treat patients with multiple personality disorder, they say that these alternate personalities can be so robust that they basically are unique persons. Hmm. Um, but it would be crazy to afford these alternate personalities, like their own social security numbers and, and things like that, and, or afford them like, you know, unique rights. No, the thing to say here is that there are multiple functional persons overlapping a single intrinsicist person. Mm -hmm. Um, Another example would be 
uh, of a functional person would be robots. You know, if one day uh, technology gets advanced enough where uh, an AI can meet sufficient conditions of personhood and that they become morally blameworthy or praiseworthy or have a rational first person perspective, then I say, yes, let's count it as a person, but it would be a functional person. It would be a person by virtue of their function and not their intrinsic nature. Mm -hmm. um, I say a group person is like that. A group person is a functional person, not a person by virtue of their nature, but by virtue of their function alone. Um, now, going back to the, the initial objection, then, is this view basically heretical? Um, <laughs> I, say, I say, no, it's not, because uh, according to the doctrine of the Trinity, there are three hypostases in one usia. Now, a hypostasis is what I'm calling an intrinsicist person. Uh, and on my view, there are three and only three hypostases uh, in one and only one usia. Now, Orthodox teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity is totally silent whether or mm -hmm. not the three hypostases can come together and form a different kind of person, what I'm calling a functional person. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there is even theological precedent for acknowledging the existence of group persons, uh, mm -hmm. which is one of the more interesting things I discovered when I was studying this topic. Yeah, this is really interesting to think about. So could you say a little bit more about like the theological precedent for there being group persons? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually quite blown away by this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I started out thinking about group agency and group personhood just from a philosophical angle. Um, but then I discovered that the biblical writers and their contemporaries might well have actually believed in group persons too. Mm -hmm. So back in 19, in the 1930s, a scholar by the name of H. Wheeler Robinson published uh, a pair of essays, enormously influential pair of, of essays that were collected together and published uh, as a book called Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. Mm. Okay, and there he argued that ancient Hebrew thought and language was suffused with the idea that groups could literally be persons. They could have a consciousness of their own distributed mm. throughout their members uh, and where their members can be representatives of this group consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. He called this idea corporate personality. Um, and he argued that corporate personality, the, the concept of corporate personality underlies uh, many, many biblical themes like iniquities and blessings being visited upon one's descendants, mm -hmm. um, the notion of a covenant, uh, blood guilt, leverite marriage collective responsibility, all these things, um, if if it's true that corporate responsibility is central to these concepts, which are central to the Old Testament especially, then corporate response, corporate personality is central to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and uh, a scholar by the name of Aubrey Johnson argued further, he took, he took uh, Wheeler Robinson's thesis even further in his book, The One in the Many in the Israelite Conception of God. And he argued that the ancients had no trouble thinking of divine beings being corporate personalities. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's closer to home, right? Um, and he cites a bunch of intriguing evidence. He even cites um, uh, a case where archeologists uh, discovered a cuneiform inscription depicting Baal as a hmm. deity that's both three and one, uh, which is very <laughs> interesting. Hmm. 
Uh, and he goes on to argue also that um, uh, the messianic figure of Daniel 7 is a corporate personality and the suffering servant of Isaiah is a corporate personality. Um, so uh, that's the Old Testament. We also see corporate personality showing up in the New Testament, uh, in particular, Paul's robust doctrine of the of the church as the body of Christ. Um, and this also explains why Paul um, has no has no apparent difficulty whatsoever in incorporating Jesus into the Jewish Shema, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the Jewish Shema being uh, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one." Uh, where in in First Corinthians eight, Paul distinguishes us Christians from from pagans, from idolaters who worship many gods, by quoting the Shema. And then he goes on to say, yes, there's only one God, but then he says there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Mm. So he distinguishes uh, or, uh, us Christians from polytheists polythea by quoting the Jewish Shema, but then incorporating Jesus into the Shema. Uh, mm. so how do you do that without some notion of corporate personality? Um, so the idea that a group could, could be a person uh, is not at all foreign to the biblical writers and their contemporaries. Um, you might think, well, why then is it so foreign to us? Why does it sound like a contradiction in terms of think a, that a group could be a person? Uh, well, here there's a long, long history and story of how our modern concept of personhood uh, became so narrow. Uh, and, and uh, one of the chief uh, events in the history of the development of concept of personhood was the great Trinitarian and Christological debates of the patristic era. Uh, so our concept of personhood grew out of these debates. Um, and of course, we can't also underestimate um, how influential Descartes was in this story. Of defining of defining a person as as sort of a singular self, an ego. Uh, I mm. think, therefore, I am kind of thing. A thinking thing is what he says. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of lot of historical episodes that culminated in our having a very narrow concept of personhood that was quite foreign to the ancients. That's really interesting. And in your work, um, you also say that this idea can help answer another objection to social trinitarian mm. social trinitarianism. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I have in mind Dale Tuggy's argument against social Trinitarianism, um, and it's his divine deception argument. Uh, I love this argument, but Dale is a good friend of mine. He is so wrong about this. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's his argument. Um, Dale argues that if social Trinitarianism were true, God would be guilty of a morally blameworthy act of deception. Okay, how so? Well, he gives this charming analogy. He says... Suppose there's an orphan named Annie who one day gets a call from someone claiming to be her father, but for reasons unknown, he can't see her in person. Nonetheless, he maintains a loving relationship over the years, let's say by phone or by email or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, until one day, he announces that he'll pay Annie a surprise visit. But when the day finally comes, to Annie's surprise and horror, not one man shows up but three men <laughs> who all claimed, who all had an equal hand in lovingly raising Annie over the years. Hmm. Uh, now, Tuggy says that these three men would be guilty of a, of a morally blameworthy act of deception. They deceived Annie into thinking that she had just one father, 
when in fact she basically had three. Uh, Tuggy says that uh, they should have let Annie into the the tri parent situation, uh, and they're and they're blameworthy for not for not doing so. In the same way, God would be guilty of deceiving the Jews, having led them to believe that He is one person when in fact He is three persons. Hmm. Okay, so that's his that's his divine deception argument. Yeah. Um, but if it's true that the that the ancients had the conceptual space to accept the existence of group persons, this analogy does not work. The argument does not work. It collapses. 21st century Annie, her concept of personhood is the product, as I just mentioned, of thousands of years of major conceptual changes that resulted in her believing her father could not be more than one person. But this just, just wasn't true of the ancient Jews and their first century heirs. In fact, the passage we just discussed where Paul, uh, as, who, who was, uh, you know, I, I had a, an old pastor used to say, Paul was one of the Jewish Jews who ever Jewed. You know, he, he was a very faithful Jew. Uh, he basically was a real life first century Annie, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he And he responded to the revelation that God is more than one person, not with horror or surprise, but by simply collapsing Jesus into the Jewish Shema and saying, well, I guess God's more than one person. Hmm. Um, so Tuggy's argument just just doesn't work if if this notion of corporate personality is as pervasive throughout the Bible as as I think it is. Mm. Right. And this is this is so, so interesting. So what we'll do now is there are a few different like questions or super chats in the live chat here. Um, so we'll get to a few of those and then we'll kind of get your last thoughts if that works for you, Chad. Absolutely. Awesome. So we'll get to a little bit of stuff here. Um, so feel free to send questions, super chats, things like that. There's a super chat from C. Fredo Sarabias. Thank you so much for your support. And he says, what objection can be said that the early um, fathers in Rome, like the early church fathers, like Alexandria and Antioch, were Christians before when the Trinity doctrine was made? Are they still Christians? So I think he's kind of saying um, a couple of things here, like what the development of like the doctrine of the Trinity um, and kind of like what about like how is this idea of Trinity essential to like the Christian faith. Um, so maybe some of the more the application of the stuff you've been talking about here, but do you have some thoughts on this question? Yeah. Well, we have to recognize the authority of tradition. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I do acknowledge the authority of tradition in uh, restricting Orthodox Christian belief. But this authority develops over time and is what we can, we can refer to as God's God's progressive revelation, prior to which, uh, as long as there's no inconsistency, it's not like, as I've been argue, uh, I've been arguing, it's not like people prior to, believers prior to the advent of the doctrine of the Trinity, believe that God was not a Trinity. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that uh, their beliefs about God was perfectly consistent with seeing God mm -hmm. as a Trinity. Uh, yeah. As long as they're consistent, that's what's important. Mm, that's great. And thank you um, for your question and your support. That means a lot. Um, a couple questions here from the beginning. Random Theology says, did you read Andrew Kirshner's uh, PhD dissertation on the Trinity? I have not. Um, I wish he said more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll, look, I'll look it up. Um, mm -hmm. Is there, it, can he say more? I, I'll see because this was earlier on and on when we were getting started. So I don't know if he's still listening okay. or not. Um, but if you are, be sure to say more because, you know, always fun to have dissertations on the Trinity. Um, but for now, there's a different question from Micah uh, Cavell, which says, um, would you agree with the argument that says that to have a God that is love, he must exist in some form of Trinity because love is an attribute based on relationships? So what do you think of kind of that idea um, for arguing for Trinitarianism? I think it's a 
it's an argument stuck in the realm of plausibility. Mm. Uh, it's, and this is the argument I mentioned earlier that Richard Swinburne has developed. The, the basic idea being love is necessarily relational. Um, mm. it's, it's a relation that obtains between uh, a lover and the beloved. Um, mm. Now, that's a, that's a kind of its own unique kind of love uh, that exists between two persons. Now, Swinburne's point is that there's, a, there's, a, there's another kind of love that's, that's not exclusive to two persons, but is more communal in nature. Uh, and uh, so in order for God to have um, God, in order for God to be perfectly loving, he'll also exemplify this sort of communal aspect of love. And so uh, minimally necessary for that would be a third person, the introduction of a third person where, where this communal love can happen. I think it's a good, I think it's a, it's a plausible argument, but um, there's just something kind of soft in, about it. Something kind of weak about it. Um, that needs to be supplemented with maybe other arguments. Uh, but I think it's it's a plausible argument. I can get on board with that. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, another kind of like a, I'll bring an objection here because we did we did a lot. Of, you did a lot of heavy lifting on this, and it's just um, Spartan theology says the Trinity is something um, we can't. I don't, the Trinity isn't something that we can reason to in this way. Um, the Trinity is something that can only be known through like the revelation of the scriptures. Um, he's not saying he's like, I'm, I'm, you're wrong. Game over, Chad. Um, but he's kind of like, like, what would you kind of respond to this kind of objection? Or like, how much can we really know about like the Trinity and such? Well, I would want to know why he thinks the Trinity isn't something we can reason to in this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there anything in scripture that says that? Is there anything in, in, in tradition that says that? No. I mean, in, in, in fact, in, in, the history of Christian thought, there have been church fathers and, and theologians and philosophers who've tried to give these sorts of natural Trinitarian arguments. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, there's a very rich history of that in the Christian tradition. Uh, tradition. Um, Richard of St. Victor would be one of them. Um, John Dun Scotus would be another. Uh, there, there's, so I think Bonaventure uh, has his own argument for the, for the Trinity, for a triune God. Um, so, uh, I, I think this idea that the Trinity, it's like this, like, uh, I, the idea that the Trinity is just like something somehow in principle, uh, barred from reasoning about, I think that's more of a modern conception that probably has its, I don't mean to imply anything about the questioner, but probably has its roots in a kind of anti-intellectualism and, uh, I think if we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, uh, nothing nothing's going to restrict us from thinking about uh, God as a Trinity. Look, if we can argue argue for the existence of God based on, say, cosmological arguments, um, what stops us from thinking more about the concept of the God to whom we just gave an ar a cosmological argument for? Um, and then what reasons might there be for thinking that this God is tripersonal? I think, I, I mean, whether or not reason can conclusively establish that God is a Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, it, maybe, maybe the hangup is this, maybe, maybe the questioner is thinking, well, we can't be certain of these things. Mm. Uh, and there I would agree. Yeah. Um, can't be certain by natural argument, by natural philosophical argument. We, we can never get to certainty about these things, but why should that be our standard of, of why, of when and why we should offer philosophical arguments? No philosophical argument gives you certainty about something. Yeah. 
or maybe maybe the idea is if you do get certainty or you do get a good philosophical argument for the Trinity that this doesn't make room for faith or something like that. Well, again, I just don't, in my experience, I haven't found that to be true. Quite the opposite, really. Um, when I think about the Trinity, uh, how we can reason to the Trinity, whether we can reason to the Trinity, coming up with these sorts of arguments, uh, my faith is emboldened and it's strengthened. And uh, I feel like my my relationship with God uh, gets deeper when I try when I try to to do this. So I don't know. Maybe I just don't I just don't share the assumption that the Trinity isn't something we can reason to. Mm. Yeah, this is great. Um, another question that we have here from Slamaran. It's a little bit related, but it's, it's a little bit off. We talked about divine simplicity for a minute. Um, but why do most Catholics believe in divine simplicity? Um, I think that if I remember right, it's in one of the councils like that they hold is kind of like authoritative that it's like got the classical theism, but the idea of classical theism. But do you under do you know about um, this question, Chad? It is it is affirmed in one of the councils. I can't remember which one. Fourth Lateran, maybe. But uh, you still have the question of, well, why did they affirm simplicity in that council? And I think we mm -hmm. just got to we got to go back. And to be honest, I think it's Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, it's it's the Catholic Church's love affair with Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> um, seriously, I, that's I think that's the explanation. Mm. Um, another super chat we had from C. Fredo. Thank you again for your support. Um, he says, do, do you give the analogy of the Trinity being like water? Um, so how would you kind of respond to a modalist who says that God um, goes wouldn't go through different states at the same time, but he's kind of like, you know, he's like ice, like water, like steam. Um, he just has like different appearances. So how would you kind of respond to this kind of like um, idea regarding like Trinitarianism? I don't like that analogy for the reason. Let me read the question again real quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't like that analogy because no water molecule is simultaneously uh, steam, ice, and, and, and liquid, whereas God is simultaneously three persons. Um, so I don't like that analogy. There might be other problems with the analogy as well. Uh, when you look at like the chemical composition of a water molecule, um, you know, the, the topic of analogies is hard because they're, you know, standard fare. It's true. There are no perfect analogies, but call me crazy. I like, I like William Lane Craig's Kerberos analogy. <laughs> uh, you know, there, you know, the, there's this, uh, three headed dog guarding the gates of Hades. Mm -hmm. Um, now just, um, just as a simple thought experiment, imagine, uh, Hercules kills this dog. Uh, and so, the the dog has a soul that uh that lives on now this soul is going to have three minds right this soul this this kerberos dog is going to have this tripartite this this triple minded soul um and i think that's a that's a fine analogy for the trinity uh, the trinity is a is a the god's being god's substance is spirit like a soul uh, and there are three minds uh, associated in some way with this soul and spirit. I think that's that's a fine analogy. Hmm. Um, we do have probably one more question here um, from Stephen Renard, and thank you for your response for that, Chad, and your uh, question, Stephen. Um, it says, what does your guest think about the triune um, Yahweh being like male, female, and son, um, kind of, I guess, like assigning like gender roles to like the Trinity's, like, you know, like we talk about God as like the father all the time and Jesus is the son. So like, what do you kind of think of like gender identity in the Trinity and such? Well, 
Uh, I think the gendered language and referring to God is extraordinarily important. Mm. Uh, Jesus thought it was important. Um, so I don't want to dismiss it. Uh, but obviously we don't want to take it literally. <laughs> we don't. Yeah. We, God is God's like I just said, God is a spirit. Um, the father, son and spirit are all immaterial. They don't have like a body with a biological gender. Um, but I think there is something to the distinction between biological sex and gender. Uh, it, and uh, even though the in the Bible, God the Father is always referred to in masculine terms, Jesus obviously in masculine terms, throughout the Bible, um, spirit uh, actually is uh, almost always uh, feminine. Is almost mm -hmm. always uh, feminine in in nature, and in, in in at least linguistically. Um, now, Greek scholars might correct me, but I'm pretty sure the Greek word pneuma for spirit is actually uh, feminine. It's it's in the, it's a feminine construct. Uh, look also at uh, how the spirit is closely associated with wisdom in the Old Testament, and wisdom is always personified as a woman. Um, mm -hmm. Gerald O'Collins' book on the Trinity, he actually goes through uh, lots of these examples of the spirit being associated with wisdom, being associated with this more feminine element. Uh, now, again, we can't really press this literally or anything like that, uh, but God created man and woman in his image. Uh, so there's got to be feminine and, and masculine aspects of 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 human nature that are good that god's image that 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 are reflected in god's image um so yeah just you got to be careful with it just don't don't be crass about it but uh, uh i think there's something to that and if you want a very profound meditation on this read the last book of c.s lewis's space trilogy no it's not the last book. It's the second book. The second book of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Uh, Lewis has some very profound thoughts about uh, um, God and, and gender. Uh, hmm. That doesn't that doesn't get weird or progressive or anything like that. It's just I think it's 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 interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I didn't say that's about all the questions we have. So, Chad, I just thank you so much for your time and preparation for doing this. Um, really appreciate it and all the work you're doing. Do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you want to say? And then if people want to follow like you and your work, um, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, I would say that um, the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely central to, to the Christian idea of God. And if you're a Christian philosopher thinking hard about, or even if you're not a, technically like a professional philosopher and you want to think hard about the very heart of, of Christianity mm -hmm. and all subsequent, subsequent Christian doctrine from creation to redemption, uh, it's Trinitarian. It's, it's thoroughly Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is what distinguishes Christianity from every other major world religion and every quasi Christian cult. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, it's essential that we think clearly and accurately about the Trinity. We argue for it. Uh, we defend it against objections. And most importantly, I think we need to figure out how it impacts us practically, such as how we pray and worship. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to this effect, I, I want to recommend a nice little book. I forget the first name of the 
author, but his last name is Perry, I believe. It's just called Worshiping Trinity. Hmm. Very nice book. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, Chad, once again, thank you so much uh, for your time. I'd encourage you. There's a link down to one of Chad's academic websites. You can follow his work and stuff. Um, and as always, if you're new to here in Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, review, anything like that helps. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. Right now, about 83% funded. So I appreciate everyone's support through that. Some support for as little as a dollar a month there. But, Chad, once again, one last time, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thank you for doing a lot of hard work on a very um, seemingly mysterious and challenging topic, but also making it understandable. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. And thank you so much for Steven, Susan, C. Fredo, everyone else that tuned in. Have a good one and God bless.